HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And there's so much in the news lately about Nordic cuisine and the new Nordic cuisine. And what do you think of when you think of Nordic cuisine? Do you think of fermented, smelly fish? Or maybe you think of uh, salmon, gravlax, and dill, whatever it is. There is more to the Nordic cuisine than meets the eye, and, and I'm so happy to, to know that it's it's back in force and, and people are discovering it for the first time, but there's a lot of history there as well. And there are a lot of new books that have come out by chefs. Um, Marcus Nielsen, is that his name? Yeah, and, and um, Rene Redzepi, of course, with Noma, having the, you know, the, the famous restaurant, and... Um, and I have done a couple shows on it, and it's it's always um, elicited a lot of of interesting comments and questions from from listeners. And today I have with me someone who has just written a new book, and she is no stranger to my show because she's written many fine books and is a wonderful scholar, Dara Goldstein. Dara has just written a new book called Fire and Ice: Classic Nordic Cooking. And Dara, it has quite a history of, of writing books. How many books, Dara? I and, don't know. I and haven't counting. counted. <laughs> but Dara is also the founder and former editor of Gastronomica, if anyone uh, knows that magazine, and is a professor of Russian at Williams College. It says here in the bio with the publisher's blurb that you've written over a dozen books. Well, written and edited, and you're just the editor also of most recently um, – the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets, the wonderful tome of all things sweet and wonderful. But this book is a, quite a departure from the Sugar and Sweets because this is all you writing about Nordic cuisine and your experience. And that's my first question is, why Nordic cuisine? Tell me about that. Why? What's your experience there? 
I'm so glad to be talking to you again, Linda. You ask all the right questions. <laughs> it is the most personal of my books, I would say, because I first went to Helsinki in 1972 as a college student wanting to get into the Soviet Union to study Russia, and I couldn't get in. There was very much the Cold War then, and I decided I needed to get someplace close where I could perhaps visit the Soviet Union as a tourist. Throw a stone across. The- exactly. Not quite a stone, <laughs> but a vodka bottle maybe. There you go. <laughs> and uh, so I enrolled in the University of Helsinki, and I spent 10 months there. And it was my first introduction to the North and to things Nordic, and I was smitten. And then uh, eight years later, newly married, once again trying to get into the Soviet Union, and my visa was denied for all kinds of complicated reasons. So once again, I was looking for a place to go where I could be thinking in a Northern way. And uh, my husband and I spent that year in Stockholm, so I got to know Sweden And then over the years, I've done some work in Norway for the Ministry of Culture and traveled to Denmark several times. So, Mm -hmm. well, as a Russian scholar, it certainly made sense to me. I mean, it's very there's so many similarities in in, you know in a lot of a lot of things, Um, even in the food, somewhat you know a a bit. Um, We when we say Nordic cuisine, we say you know uh, things Nordic. Explain for us what makes up that whole Nordic region. Which countries are we talking about? It's actually broader than the scope of this book. So if you're thinking about the Nordic countries, it would be Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Greenland, Faroe Islands, Iceland. Iceland, right. Um, I noticed that you know, Iceland out you know, missing from that group that you were familiar with that you really wrote you know, in particular. Yes, What I had originally thought about doing was a book about the northern dimension, starting in the far east of Russia, and tracing this idea of survival in cold places, and how people preserve foods, how they lived from the land and from the sea, and showing how the dishes changed and how they evolved as you move from east to west Hmm. and ignoring political boundaries because those are artificial and those are always changing as we know but uh, Russia seemed to be the so-called odd man out for the publisher and so then I decided to focus on the core countries but again the Scandinavians don't consider Finland part of Scandinavia. <laughs> so it all has to well, do that with was, semantics. That was my, yeah, and that was my other question. So we talk about Nordic cuisine, but then we talk about Scandinavia and what makes up Scandinavia. I was, I was never clear on that, having been myself, I was never clear which countries were included and which weren't. I think when we talk about Scandinavia, it's really Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. Denmark. And they uh, have very similar languages. They have a shared history in political terms. Uh, They have all been very intertwined. And importantly, in terms of the cuisine, a lot of it has come from uh, the European court. If you're talking about the cuisine that has come down from on high, I'm not talking about what the, the regular folk were eating, but there has definitely been a French European overlay to that. If you look at Finland, it fell under the sphere of Russia. So there was that imperial cuisine, but it was very different, at least uh, in certain respects from what was happening in France. And also the language is so different. Right. Yeah, uh, Finland is certainly the most Russian of, of, of any of those countries in, in terms of 
Well, and it was the most affected by the revolution as well, right? Yes, and very much so by the uh, Finno-Russo War, Finno-Russian War, um, and the Winter War following World War II, and it was quite devastating. And they lost a lot of their country to Russia. Mm -hmm. It's now within Russia's borders. Yeah. Well, back to the food <laughs> and, and 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 uh the wonderful cuisines as you know often you know we think of a viking standing on top of a glacier, you know, <laughs> planting a pole and holding up a piece of fish. Um but really it is this and for you I must I must applaud you because this is quite adventurous for a California girl <laughs> to be <laughs> some, you know, putting herself in the midst of all this cold. I love study. the cold. Yeah, okay. I love the ice. <laughs> um, but you said in the beginning of your book something about the the cuisine and the culture, which I think uh, um, for me is an overriding theme, and that is that creativity fostered by austerity. Talk about that a little bit. So if you think about most of what I will call Scandinavia for purposes of convenience, it is very far north, and much of it lies above the Arctic Circle. The land is pretty barren. You have the sea. All of these countries that I talk about in the book have extensive coastline, and so the sea is a source of nourishment. The land on the surface, it would seem less so. You can't grow wheat in the northern part, certainly in Denmark and in the southern part of Sweden in an area called Skåne, which is known as the Tuscany of Sweden because the climate is so temperate. Wheat grows very well. But it was really spelt and barley and oats. And then rye came in from Russia. Yeah, I was going to say rye, was, rye is so prevalent. Yeah, in so many but originally dishes. it was really barley, hmm. but it was, and oats were the primary grains. So uh, they learned to live from the land, and that's part of what the new Nordic is all about. It's really a very old Nordic in creative new hands, um, taking things like fir tips and spruce buds and tiny birch leaves and lichen and sea buckthorn uh, the berries are just extraordinary. The mushrooms are extraordinary. So the land really uh, offers up a lot of riches. But uh, you have to work for them. It's not uh, like a climate where you, the soil is so rich with minerals and uh, fertility that you can just stick a seed in the ground and watch it grow. Right, right. Well, as you mentioned, the coastline, you know, most of those countries all being tied together by a coastline, that fish is, you know, figures predominantly in all the cultures. And also preservation, um, that the preservation techniques you mentioned in your book, precisely that the preservation techniques underlie the whole Nordic diet. They do, and it's so wonderful to be in Brooklyn today, and <laughs> this is sort of the fermenting capital of the right. United States now, I think, and I don't know how many pickle producers there are. It's all become very chic, yes. but it really did arise out of necessity. And one of the most classic Scandinavian dishes that is now uh, sort of a high-end food, if you want to think about that way, is gravlaks. But it comes from the Swedish words gravid locks, which is simply buried salmon. So when the fishermen were catching the salmon, they would put it, they would bury it in the sand uh, until they had finished the expedition and it would start to ferment lightly. Mm -hmm. Of course, now we do it just by rubbing it with 
salt, and if you're in Sweden, you add quite a bit of sugar. Uh, pepper, you can add elderflowers, you can add fennel, uh, juniper berries, lots of different flavors, layer with dill. And in two to three days, you have this beautiful cured fish. But the salted herring, which was the mainstay of Denmark's economy for a long time, the dried cod, which allowed Norway to survive for many, many years until they struck it rich with oil. Mm. It all comes down to different methods of um, pr preservation. Well, you mentioned the salted herring that, and, and it being um, you know, economically their economic mainstay that that was the main export for for how long for oh for hundreds of hundreds years, of years yeah. yeah um describe some of the differences that would i mean i'm thinking okay it's not gravlax from you know one country to the next but yes gravlax you will find <laughs> okay i mean sorry i <laughs> i stand corrected but describe some of the differences of the cuisine from let's say from I don't see too many, in my mind, differences between the Nor Norwegian and, mm -hmm. and Danish cuisines, but I know there must be. And then, of course, and then in Sweden. So what are there particular, is a, a particular dish that would distinguish each of these countries' cuisines? Uh, I think you can pull out a dish from all of the different countries, but I would stop short of saying that that is the distinctive dish. Mm -hmm. If I think about Finland, I think about their extraordinary range of rye breads and also crisp breads because they would not only make sourdough loaves that uh, were baked um, and beautifully leavened, but also they uh, would bake loaves that they allowed to dry and become something akin to hardtack. I prefer to call it crisp bread <laughs> uh, because that's a much more appetizing word. But that would last for a long time. And in the houses, they would be strung on poles because they'd have a Whole, indentation right? in yeah, the, a, little, a circle yeah. in the center. And you could always know that you had something to eat. Uh, the Finns make a lot of fun of the Swedes because they say that everything in Sweden is too sweet. So if you look at, say, a Finnish gravlax or, uh, and a Swedish one, the Swedes will add much more sugar to it. There is a, a commercial bakery, a baker, called Fatser, which has been around since the end of the 19th century, and they have different formulas for their rye bread. And in Sweden, it has more sugar in it than in You have to appeal Finland. to the people, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's more of a taste for the sour. Denmark, uh, I think of the amazing dairy products and the pork products in Denmark. And in Norway, I always go to cod. Mm. But when I think about all the countries, one of the things that might be surprising that unites them all, because I do have this love of things sweet, is almond paste. And you think, well, almonds don't grow in the Nordic countries. And if you think also about the cinnamon buns, the beautiful, beautiful cinnamon buns you find everywhere, and the flavor of cardamom, which is characteristic <laughs> of almost all of the baked goods. It's because the Vikings, we tend to think of them as having gone to England, Ireland, and on to Iceland, and then Vinland, and Canada, in effect. But they also went south and east. So they were trading on the Black Sea and the Caspian, and there they connected with the trade routes from China and the Far East, and they brought all of these spices and also saffron, importantly, in cloves, the kinds of uh, warming spices, mm -hmm. ginger as well. You find 
gingerbread cookies, crisp cookies in all of the countries. So this um, very austere sounding diet that I've been describing is actually also very lush with beautiful baked goods. Yeah, indeed. Um, in fact, I want to talk more about some of those beautiful baked goods. But let's take a little break before we do that, because then we can get into a, a long talk about some recipes as well. Okay. Wow, wow, wow. Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice, and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Fire Cider added whole, raw, certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Fire cider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Fire cider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. If I had a magic wand, tomorrow everyone in the world would have enough food to eat that was culturally appropriate and delicious. The planet would be thriving because all the food would have been grown and produced in a way that sustains us, both our bodies and our, our world. But man, I do not have a magic wand. What I do have is you and this radio station, the Heritage Radio Network. That's what we're here to do. We're here to help lead the way to a future that's more delicious, that's more fun, where we're healthier, where the planet's healthier. And we want you to be a part of that. We can't do it without you. As a nonprofit radio station, we depend on the support of our listeners. So take a minute out of your day, visit the website, and click the big beating donate tab. Throw us a few bucks. Every bit helps. We're counting on you. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Dara Goldstein. Her new book is Fire and Ice, Classic Nordic Cuisine. Classic Nordic Cooking, actually. And uh, we were... We're talking about pastries, and I was thinking, but it's it's such an odd thing to think about these wonderful pastries that particularly Denmark is known for. When you think otherwise of these of these heavy rye crisp breads, or or the porridges that were cooked for eight hours, I love those porridges. <laughs> Isn't there? There's one of some rye porridge that that you have a recipe for in your book that is. You say, oh, and put it in the oven for eight hours? Yes, overnight. And then you wake up to this beautiful porridge of rye berries that becomes very creamy because it's slow cooked. You add some dried cranberries or blueberries, and they add natural sweetening. Oh, And it's wonderful. just beautiful. When I said put it in the oven for eight hours, I thought, well, wait a minute. <laughs> but I guess that's like 
fixing our oatmeal the night before. Exactly. You know? yeah, right. um, but so there, I still have the question, and that is, you said, and and you even wrote about in your book that Durham wheat was not imported until quite late, um, like the seventies or some nineteen seventies or. No, it it came in. It came in earlier. from other countries, but anyway, they have the hard winter weeds, and they didn't they didn't really grow weeds except in that southern region, the Skana region. Yet Denmark is known for these most flaky, light, and delectable pastries. How did that happen? How did that happen? <laughs> right. Well, it's one of those things where the actual facts are lost to history. Mm. There was some exchange of chefs between Copenhagen and Vienna. And it's not clear which direction it happened and who (laughs) was the person who uh, brought the secret. But basically, in in Denmark, these are are called uh, Vienna pastries, as they are in in France. They're not called Danish pastries. Mm -hmm. So uh, they learned the art of that modified puff pastry from Danish bakers, uh, sorry, from Viennese bakers. And then they added uh, more fat to it in Denmark, and then it was brought to the United States in the nineteen in the teens, actually, and became very chic. And by the early nineteen twenties, there was a, a Danish man whose name I've now forgotten, who had a cooking school right. I think it was on Fifth Avenue in New York, huh. or if not on Fifth Avenue, it it had a very good address, and he was teaching the art of these pastries, yeah. but. You know, even more than that flaky pastry, I really love the enriched breads that have lots of eggs and butter in them. And in Finland, there's a beautiful uh, braided wreath that looks like challah that's called pulla. The pulla, uh-huh. uh, That's cardamom flavored. And when I was a student there, you know, <laughs> penurious as all students are, my great treat every morning on the way to university was to get a slice or two of that. And some hot chocolate. Yeah. Oh, that's kept me sustained. Sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. Um, what, and I was thinking of the um, of the pula. Mm-hmm. Also, that's something I, I wanted to be sure to ask you about um, because that it sounded wonderful. It sounded, you know, it, something you, you use the hard. They use the hard wheat, but yet, you know, they come out with something that is puffy and, and delectable. Yeah, and they use a very fine wheat now. Um, when wheat. Uh, when the milling of wheat and the processing became much less expensive with industrialization in the late 19th century, suddenly there was a lot of wheat available in all of these countries. And that's really when the great tradition of fine baking took hold. And one of the things that you find across all of these countries that I write about in the book is the pride in having a table set usually with seven different kinds of cakes, cookies, and breads. And it would be uh, women's groups, it would be uh, individual housewives, or you would go to a, a tea house, or even today in, in Sweden, there's this institution, by which I mean a social institution called Fika. And you know, there are Fikas here. It's a, a coffee and pastry mm-hmm. shop in New York City. And it's really a coffee break that is instituted at workplaces twice a day where you have an assortment of uh, delicious breads and cookies and cinnamon buns and things like that. So it, it's very much part of the fabric of society and, and a point of pride still. Oh, nice tradition. I like that. Um, you brought up a couple things that I, I have on 
on my notes of wanting to ask you about. Um, and you brought up uh, the the smorg well, the the table, all the wonderful things on the table, and and one of the words, of course, that we know that are, we're very familiar with is uh, from Swedish is smorgasbord. Yes, <laughs> which is a bad become, idea about it. Yeah, we have a bad <laughs> idea about it now because in the United States it's become an all-you-can-eat buffet. But in Sweden, it's actually very regimented and very elegant. It started out as a spirits board, distilled spirits, aquavit, uh, which is usually a, a caraway-flavored uh, vodka-like drink. And you would go and you know come in out of the cold, and you'd be warmed by an array of different spirits. In the 19th century, more and more food came to be added, and uh, it became a buffet. But in 1939, it was introduced at the Swedish Pavilion of the New York World's Fair, and it became just a, a sensation here and morphed into this American style. In Sweden, in the 1960s, there was a very famous restaurateur uh, in Stockholm who uh, made rules for the smorgasbord, that there had to be five different helpings, in effect. He called them tours. And you would always start with His Majesty the Herring mm -hmm. and have a whole array of different herring preparations. Then you would go back for fish and seafood. Then you would go back for cold meats and salads. Then hot dishes like uh, stuffed cabbage rolls, things like that, or Swedish meatballs. And then finally the dessert. But you never, ever would pile them all on your plate at once. Oh, interesting. Um, that And the... Uh the other word is um, smorbord, which, oh. again, the breads, the pastries, very important. Talk, yes. Tell us about that. So those are also a fairly recent innovation yeah. if we're thinking in geologic time. <laughs> <laughs> and those date back to the late 19th century to the Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen. And um, a man named Oscar Jakobson, who had a wine shop, and he thought with the wine he should offer a taste of something. And so he made some open-faced sandwiches, and those became more and more elaborate and more and more architectural hmm. until today you have these amazing uh, meals in themselves. And you eat them with knife and fork. You don't pick them up oh, in your really? hands and, oh. and uh, put them in your mouth. And they have a, a restaurant in Copenhagen called Royal Smooshie, which is sort of a, a fusion between the smurra bread, the open face sandwich, and sushi. So it is hmm. uh, evolving as we speak. <laughs> Breaded fish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> fish between bread. I said s'more board, it's s'more broad, no, s'more bread, right? Um, the, and these are, these are things we know, obviously, from you know, restaurants and more you know, elaborate settings. And, of course, with the new Nordic cuisine, we know a lot of the dishes, well, they're very um, manipulated. They're very, uh, as you said, architectural um, for the smorbrod, but um, elaborate and, and sort of fussed over designed plates. And yet so much of the cooking that is that is part of the culture is really home cooking, or as you said, what's Husman's cast? That's close it, enough, okay. yeah. <laughs> That's the Swedish word for uh, Husman's Kost. Okay. Um, and that wasn't perfect either, but <laughs> close enough. Um, that's the home cooking, and that's really how people eat. Most people, I would say that everyone 
um, not everyone, but uh, most people in all of these cultures go out and forage. Uh, they would call it gather mushrooms and berries in season. It is a cultural ritual. It's not unusual. And it is a great joy in the late spring, uh, late summer, and into the fall. And so there are a lot of wonderful recipes for mushrooms and for berries. But at home, people are busy. They eat simply, and, and they're not really collecting lichen and some of the more unusual dishes that you would find on New Nordic um, menus. Of course, the Sami, the Laplanders, did uh, use the lichen, but often they dried it, and in times of hunger, they made it, they ground it and put it into bread. Hmm. So it, it was a poverty food. Yeah, um, I think it, and one just only has to think about ourselves and well, how do we? You know, we don't on, only eat at these celebrity restaurants. You know, we eat home cooking. You mm-hmm. know, so it's it stands to reason. Um, and you mentioned everyone was so involved, is so involved in foraging, and one only has to think about the climate and the you know that waiting for the sun and then the sun never goes down and then waiting and then winter comes and the sun never comes up um talk about um the warm winter you mentioned you talk uh, yeah very that, nice about uh, oh warm so that is in um the arctic up, up above the arctic circle and particularly in a part of sweden called tornadal and what happens is uh, the winter is very, very dark, and the days are very <laughs> short or long, depending how you <laughs> look at it. And suddenly the sun very, very uh, quickly starts to shine, but there's still a lot of snow on the ground. So the sun is warming the ground, and the snow is starting to melt, but it's still winter. And so you have this sense of warmth and brightness, and that's called warm winter. So it's warm winter, and it's like uh, this six-week period in between winter when it's dark and cold and uh, genuine spring when the snow has melted. Yeah, so you can imagine any kind of sprout of green would be such a welcome sight. <laughs> yeah, one of the very surprising things is how extraordinarily tasty vegetables are there because they get 24 hours of sunlight. So they're soaking up so much energy from the sun that they're not uh, pallid. I mean, I live in the Berkshires and my vegetables never taste as good as they do in in Scandinavia. Huh. Um w- We've talked a lot about um, the vegetables and foraging, but something that is very necessary for in the preservation, but something that's so necessary for the preservation, of course, is salt. And obviously, living on the seacoast, they had access to salt if they dried it, but salt became quite an industry. Right? Um, it is problematic because if you look at a country like Norway, they actually uh, couldn't easily evaporate salt because it wasn't warm enough Mm. to do it. Uh, The waters were frozen for much of the time. So most of their dried fish is dried with very little salt. And the taste that uh, the Nordic countries have for this intensely fermented fish, 
partly comes because salt was very expensive. And so they didn't use lavish layers of, of salt to preserve it. They used just enough to keep it from uh, completely rotting. But to many Western palates, it already has gone in the, the direction side. Of, <laughs> of rotted. So salt um, is used sparingly. I would say that smoking is another very important method uh, of preservation. Right. Right. Um, interesting, because you said this, the, you described the intense flavor. And that's how you describe the Nordic region, a place of intensity. Yeah. It, it's, um, dare I say, polar opposites. Uh, <laughs> you have the amazing freshness of these foods that come right from the ground, the beautiful earthy mushrooms and these gorgeous berries and juniper berries and a, a, a smell of the earth and also the cultivated vegetables and fruits that they grow. And then you have them preserved that brings in another spectrum of flavors that uh, transforms them into something that is very much other. And I love that sequence moving from the summertime through the fall and the flavors becoming more and more intense until in the spring you once again get the subtlety of the earliest herbs, the nettles and mm -hmm. things like mm -hmm. that that you're gathering. And, and, of course, dill. I mentioned dill at the top of the show. Yes. I mean, and... and Dill has a meaning. What is it? Uh, it comes from tilla, which means to comfort. Comfort. Which may be why it's probably my favorite herb. And, and you know, it's interesting. Comfort, I think of something, I think of something warm, you know, so soothing. Dill, I think of bright and fresh and outdoors and green. Uh, but I guess if you have, if you, if that's found outdoors and you've been cold, I mean, that's, then that's, it is bright is and fresh and outdoors yeah. and green, but, um, it has properties that are soothing, that are comforting and yeah. soothing. Yeah. Uh, dill. So that, I mean, dill, I still think of, you know, that's what I think of when I think yeah. of Nordic cuisine, but berries, of bringing course. up comfort. There's this wonderful Danish word. I can't ever get the, the G's quite right in Danish, but something like hygge, uh, which describes a state of mind more than anything else. It's this idea of, of coziness and comfort, but it's not the kind of coziness that you have if you're alone under your duvet in bed. You have to be with people. You should be drinking some glug uh, or some aquavit uh, mulled wine. You should have a fire or candles lit, and outside it should be a little bit forbidding, dark and cold and gray. And then you have this feeling of comfort, and that is this idea of hygge, and it comes from the same Old Norse root as our word hug. Oh, interesting. So it, it's about embracing one another um, and finding communion mm -hmm. uh, around the table and in sharing food and drink. Yeah, I think, and that gives a, a whole different perspective on the food as well. I mean, I, I, to me, I look at the table in a different way than, than you know, some of the the little morsels that, that are coming from the ground. Yeah. I just, um, it's interesting. Well, thank you. This, this book is, is, um, a wonderful eye opener to the differences and yet the, the commonalities between these regions and what is found there. And, and um, I just wanted to mention one about the different, uh, there's, if we could use words, you know, individual words to describe the areas, uh, Norway was always considered the poorest yes. of the regions, right? And so what they was subsisted on 
porridges and flatbreads, but but dairy, a lot of dairy. Yes, and they still make uh, this very creamy yetust, which is a, a goat's uh, whey, goat's milk whey, and uh, milk or cream that's added and cooked down until it caramelizes and turns golden brown. And it's very fudge-like and it's huh. sort of sweet, and that's put on crisp bread. And it's sort of the national cheese, even more so than Jarl's buried. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and Finland is, was known, as you mentioned, as sort of like the wild side. Yeah. Um, why? Uh, because it is more on the edge. Uh, people live closer to the earth. Um, the flavors, I think, are perhaps um, slightly more extreme um, in their uh, closeness to nature. For instance, one of the flavors that Finns still really like is tar. Uh, hmm. Which isn't so strange if you think of retsina, mm-hmm. you know, which, which also is resinous. So uh, it, it's a flavor of resin that comes from the pine trees. Mm-hmm. And tar was a great industry in Finland. They were uh, responsible for the successes of the British arm, uh, British Navy <laughs> for all of the boats and the shipbuilding. But they still make a tar bread. There's tar ice cream, which is amazing. It's really wonderful. Tar liqueur, tar candies. And also they have a real taste for salmiaki, which is a very strong, salty licorice. Hmm. An acquired taste. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I say. Um, And then with Sweden and, and Denmark, you sort of see those as the milder the milder cuisines, the milder climates, or uh, both of Denmark and Sweden. Uh, the south of Sweden shares many characteristics with Denmark, mm-hmm. and in fact, they were once the same country. So they can raise a lot of uh, right now. And in, in southern Denmark, they're actually growing wine. I mean, growing grapes for wine huh. because it is so temperate. Uh, so and there is a lot more availability of, of fresh foods. Interesting. Uh, what other area would have berries known as cloud berries? And yes, something that has just what and and I I can't I don't I've never found a cloud berry to um, to purchase to know what it's like. But how is it? What is a cloud berry oh, similar to? A cloud berry is in my dreams because I can't get fresh ones here. You can certainly get cloudberry preserves. Mm -hmm. So they look like um, big golden raspberries, but the droops, you know, the individual little segments are bigger than you find on raspberries. And it's a deep, deep gold. And they grow in boggy areas. So you always have to fight mosquitoes. (laughs) And um, they have a sort of musky taste. They also amazingly have a lot of um, omega-3 fats, which is surprising. In a berry. In a berry. It's very unusual. So they're usually uh, cooked with sugar to preserve them. And then in the middle of winter, you open up this jar of the sun is how I think about it, because it's so golden, the color remains. They're made into a great liqueur in Finland. Uh, And I think of them along with the lingonberries, which Mm -hmm. are also very difficult to find here fresh. But they have so much natural benzoic acid that you can just stir them with sugar. You don't even have to cook Cook them. them. Right. And and they remain vibrant. Right. Interesting. It's it's just a phenomenal 
area and and culture and cuisine, it's no wonder that it's having this renaissance it's and popularity. Moment. Yes, yes, <laughs> it, it, it's moment indeed, yeah. indeed. Nordic May it cuisine. last. All right. Well, thank you, Dara, so much for for sharing that information, and and I encourage our listeners to take a look at Fire and Ice classic Nordic cooking. And Dara, as always, a pleasure and um, and just a font of knowledge. And I I hope that um, this will to lead to other great things to come. Thank, we await it. Thank you, Linda. It's always wonderful talking to you. <laughs> and thanks for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. <laughs> listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.